Welcome to Shelter in Place, a podcast about finding daily sanity in a world that feels increasingly insane. Coming to you from Oakland, California, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. It's Easter Monday for those of us who celebrate that holiday. Usually on Easter, we host a party where a bunch of families from our church come to celebrate together after the service. The sounds from our backyard are of corks popping, glasses clinking, kids giggling and hunting for eggs. Maybe because I didn't have those diversions this year, I found myself thinking not just about resurrection, but about doubt and the mark a person's life and death can leave on us. This past weekend, my husband's cousin, Greg Edgel, sent the family a short essay he wrote a few days ago on the anniversary of his dad's death. I never knew Doug Edgel. He died 22 years ago, a few years before I met my husband, Nate, but I often wish I could have. By all accounts, he was a charismatic, energetic force in the family, an adventurer, an entrepreneur, a visionary. There's an epic picture of him water skiing, his body almost horizontal over the water, his hand stretched out toward a wall of spray. I like to think that we would have really liked each other. When Nate was 18, he lived with his Uncle Doug and his family for a summer. I still see the imprints of that time on my husband today. His love for water skiing and old BMWs, his sense of adventure, his creative spark. Even though I never knew him, Doug's life and death undergird the family history I'm now a part of. 22 years later, the details of Doug's death are still shrouded in doubt. When he was 46 years old, he was traveling for work and collapsed when he reached his gate at the airport. There was a wound on the side of his head. I spoke to his wife, Gabrielle, this morning to ask her permission to talk about Doug's death today. Gabrielle told me that after Doug died, she hired a private investigator to try to understand what happened. She said Doug was like a bull in a china closet. He'd had multiple head injuries over the years and usually thought nothing of it. She thinks he hit his head on the trunk of the rental car when he was rushing to the airport, the final head injury that would make him sick and die a half hour later. He called her and a work colleague during that time. He was lucid. He had no idea that the life he'd lived would be over in minutes. Gabrielle said, He was 46. It was half a life. But he certainly lived those 46 years. He left his mark. Greg was 10 years old when his dad died, just a couple of years older than my son is now. When COVID-19 hit, Greg had recently moved back in to live with his mom. He's a sales agent for a real estate company in New Jersey, and he thought he'd help his mom renovate her house. In the process, he came across some of Doug's old journals. Greg writes, While in Mindham, I have been slowly unpacking my emotional and at times existential luggage finding new purpose to what it means to be the last of my name, discovering legal correspondence about my father's passing, the seven names of the people his organs saved, and the bracelets that were on his wrists in the hospital, a scattered collection of family photos that span back to the 40s that I'm now archiving for posterity, my bar mitzvah Torah portion, an audio cassette of me practicing, Holocaust video archives, newly converted SVHS family tapes showing me a family I have very little recollection of, and 
my father's journal during AA that is by far the most visceral thing I have ever read in my entire life. Greg's process of going through the evidence of his father's life and death has shaken him in ways he hadn't anticipated. A lot of what Greg read was his father searching for hope and purpose during dark times. It beckoned Greg back to his family's Jewish faith, a faith he distanced himself from for many years. Greg writes, These past five months have brought me closer to my father than the past 31 years of my life. And for that, I thank God for the process. Moments like these, the only way to describe it is catching lightning in a bottle. They are what have allowed me to say with humility and conviction that my highest ideal is no longer myself and my process, but God and his. It's remarkable the tragedies and struggles this family has endured. My story is just a thread in the fabric. But if it wasn't for those defining moments of suffering and sacrifice, none of us would be who we are today. This family is built on grit and persistence, but it is so important that we don't stop unpacking our luggage. Self-work today helps our families tomorrow. Reading Greg's words yesterday on Easter Sunday got me thinking about my own self-work, about unpacking the luggage of my faith journey. It's a process that, more than anything, has been defined by doubt. My earliest memories include my mom telling me that faith isn't really faith without doubt. I remember a conversation when I was old enough to be aware that my older siblings were calling themselves Christians. I wanted to join the club, but my mom gently told me that I wasn't ready. She said that I needed to be old enough to understand what it meant. She said faith was a big deal, that it was important to ask hard questions. God was big enough to handle my doubts. I'm a little awed by her response now that I have kids of my own, kids who, before COVID-19, were coming home from school telling me about teachers and friends who told them that they don't believe in God. My son recently asked me if he was allowed to not believe in God. I told him he was allowed to believe in whatever he wanted, but that we were teaching him about our faith because we believe it's true. I'm trying to offer him the same freedom to doubt that my mom gifted to me. She understood that a faith I hadn't wrestled with would never really be a faith of my own. Over the years, I've become increasingly grateful that both my family and every church I've ever been a part of has encouraged me to embrace doubt. The phrase, I do believe, but help my unbelief, has become sacred to me. My current church was founded on the idea that skeptics and even atheists should have a safe place to ask the hard questions about faith. As our family tuned in for our church's online Easter service yesterday, I found myself sitting with that doubt once again. Our friend and pastor, Jonathan St. Clair, put to words what I was feeling. He said in his homily, Science teaches and our experience confirms that once our bodies die, they stay dead. That's why being a resurrection people and Easter people is such a revolutionary nonconformist way of being in this world where the dead stay dead. Because on the one hand, we affirm science and reason and experience. And on the other hand, we paradoxically affirm that one human being broke through death and went out the other side. 
that one person in the middle of history, in the middle of the night, walked out of the grave with a new body that was undestructible and alive and would never die again. And I know that's absolutely crazy. The resurrection is the thing that really keeps Christianity weird. Jonathan said that the resurrection never really became real to him until he was holding his mom's hand as she died, until he put her body in the ground and then spent his 20s and 30s visiting that grave. He said the resurrection began to convert his mind and comfort his heart. It didn't bring back his mom, but it changed the way that he lived in this world. While Easter is the high point of the Christian calendar, it's also the day when it's most obvious that the entire Christian faith hangs on one crazy detail. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, if those 500 witnesses didn't really see him resurrected and spend time with him, then the entire construct of Christianity comes crashing to the ground. As C.S. Lewis famously said, when you really study the scriptures of what Jesus said about himself, you only have three options in defining him, liar, lunatic, or Lord. As author Caitlin Beatty said yesterday on Twitter, on Easter, I recall that I'm a Christian because no one could have invented a religion that, one, centered on a dead itinerant Galilean preacher rising from the dead, and two, had the whole thing hang on the testimony of women. I agree with Caitlin. I think if someone had wanted to make up Christianity, they would have been a bit more strategic about making the details believable. They wouldn't have made women the first people to see the resurrected Christ at a time in history when the testimony of women didn't even hold up in court. But reason, while helpful, is not the thing that has pushed me deep in my faith. It's doubt. Doubt keeps me examining my faith and my life over and over again, asking myself what it is I'm living for. COVID-19 has pushed me to ask myself that question in new ways, to try to figure out why the life I led before didn't always align with my values, why that gap is still there even now. In his commencement speech to Kenyon University students in 2005, three years before he took his own life, Author David Foster Wallace said, Because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. My own life is a testimony to the truth of Wallace's words. 
I wish I could tell you that my Christian faith makes me an awesome person, or even that building my life on the teachings of Jesus means that I never lose my true north. In my best moments, I like to think this is true, but I've spent a lot of my life worshiping other things. You don't have to look far in the history of the church to see that I'm not alone in my screw-ups. I understand why so many people in my life don't believe. A lot of them have been hurt personally by the church. As Gandhi put it, if it weren't for Christians, I'd be a Christian. For me, the journey back to the cross is a daily thing. I need it to keep perspective, to remind me that the point of Christianity isn't earning my goodness, but receiving grace. My faith doesn't make my life safer or easier or more comfortable. If anything, it makes it harder. But it's a great comfort to me to know that on the days when I am the worst version of myself, when I've screwed up everything and I'm embarrassed of myself, there's someone who sees me in my mess and loves me completely, who gently offers, once again, another way. As Wallace says, the trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. In this time of sheltering in place, when our world has been forced to keep our mortality up front in our daily consciousness, we have an opportunity to ask ourselves the deepest questions of what we're about. It's a question that can be terrifying. We might come up empty-handed. We might find that our doubts lead not to certainty, but to more doubting. But that doubting might also surprise us. It might reveal the things we assumed we knew, but that need to be re-examined. Keeping that truth up front in daily consciousness has led Greg back to Judaism. It led Jonathan deeper into a Christianity that we don't often see in politics or the media. As Jonathan is fond of saying, tell me about the God you don't believe in, because I probably don't believe in him either. Doubt is still a part of my faith today. I try to be real about that with my kids, to give them the freedom to doubt themselves. But I also try to show them the mark one person had on my life. How reading the stories of his life have changed me and given me something to hold on to. I don't know where they'll land on their faith journey. I try to encourage their questions and their doubts. If God is real, he's big enough to handle them. If you've enjoyed today's episode of Shelter in Place, I would love it if you could rate it and review it wherever you listen share it with a friend, and subscribe. Shelter in Place is sponsored by Brick and Mortar and Delta Wines. Even in these tough times, this family business has stepped up to be the first sponsor of Shelter in Place. When you order wine from brickandmortarwines.com or winesforchange.com, you can get 10% off your order by using the promo code SHELTER. If you order six or more bottles from Brick and Mortar, you'll also get free shipping and overnight shipping in California. The Shelter in Place music was composed by Chase Horseman at Reactor Productions, and the Shelter in Place artwork was created by Sarah Edgel. As always, you can find links to the things I mentioned in each episode in my show notes at laurajoycedavis.com. Until tomorrow, this is Shelter in Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis.